So a warm welcome to all of you here uh, physically, as well as those of you who are tuning in, uh, both on Community Plus as well as uh, on Cornerstone's uh, YouTube, Facebook. You guys doing okay this morning? Amen. Praise the Lord. This week, I want to talk about how to host a queen, okay? And for all of you husbands, I'm not talking about how you're going to look after your wives, okay? That's really important. I'll reserve that for another message another time, okay? But there is a famous queen in the Bible, a good queen, a queen of Sheba. And the account of the queen of Sheba coming to Israel is found in 1 Kings chapter 10. And essentially, she had heard this rumor and this reputation of a king in Israel, King Solomon, his wisdom, and how fantastic this nation of Israel was. And so she decided to come visit the king and the nation. And the remarkable thing is that after her visit and the account of her visit, her expectations of Israel as well as of King Solomon were completely exceeded by all that she had I believe that this is an incredible account for us and there is something that God wants us to glean. It's not just something that happened thousands of years ago, but there is a principle, there is something that the Lord wants us to learn. And it is how we as a church can make an impression on those who are outside. Just as Israel, as God's people, made a great impression on the Queen of Sheba, God wants us as a church to make an impression on the people of the world. By this, I don't mean impressing people outside, but I mean making an impactful impression that causes people to rethink their positions. Amen? To make an impression that brings about a change of heart in those who are looking at us from the outside. Of course, the way I want to approach this subject today is to consider the specific things in which the Queen of Sheba was impressed about the nation of Israel. Now, before I do that, I want to lay for us a very, very simple and important understanding as we approach this subject of patterns in the Scriptures, okay? Because the Bible oftentimes gives us a lot of patterns, amen? We're told that there are patterns uh, such as the tabernacle of Moses and how the tabernacle of Moses was built, the outer court, the holy place, and the holiest of all, amen? We are given a wonderful pattern of the seven feasts of Israel and how each of these feasts are to be uh, celebrated. Now, the construction of Noah's Ark is again a wonderful pattern about how to be preserved in a time of judgment. Elijah's confrontation uh, with Israel on Mount Carmel and the subsequent breaking of the drought again is a very, very powerful pattern that God gives to us about how to break through when the ground is really, really difficult. Amen. And so there are many patterns that the Bible paints for us and it shows us an order or a system through which God worked. Amen. But there is something that we need to understand and something that we must not forget that all patterns are only for a season. Amen. All patterns are only for a season. The same pattern is not to, uh, meant to be applied like a methodology over and over again without a consideration of what God is doing at that moment. Now, King David understood this. And that's why King David, every time he went to battle, he would seek the Lord and he would ask God, what is it that I'm supposed to do? One time the Lord said to him, send the worship team in first and fight the battle. And they won. Amen. The funny thing about King David was that he never went back and relied upon the same method that God had told him before. He always asked God, and every time God would do something new with him. You see, there's a problem with all of us humans. There's something about all of us people, okay? We love patterns. Amen. We love patterns, we love formulas, and we love it because it's easy for us to rely upon this. All we need to do is say, hey, this situation fits this situation. What we did succeeded last time, let's use it like a formula again. But something about God, God doesn't like us to rely upon formulas. I want to show you a little illustration on the slides. 
And it goes like this, okay? You see, when we begin to focus on a pattern, even though the season for the pattern is over, then what that pattern, what we do becomes a tradition and a form. The pattern that once used to give life, that once used to be uh, used by God to bring victory, all of a sudden it loses its life-giving power and it becomes something dead. Not only does it not give life anymore, but instead there is a deadness, there's a dullness that comes upon that pattern. Now, I want to give us a simple example, okay? And uh, the example is cell groups. And you know, there is a general system to cell groups that we use. I remember being taught this years ago, No, actually, I was taught this decades ago, okay? That when it comes to cell group, there is a pattern, right? There are five things we do. We start cell group with the icebreaker. Then we come together for worship. Then we pray. Then we have the word. Then we have fellowship. The five things that we do in cell groups. And this started decades ago. And when it first started, it worked well. It worked tremendous. It was something small groups began to take off all over in our nation. And soon, small groups became something essential in every single church. Everybody followed the same five steps that we do in regards to cell group. Everybody adopted the same pattern. But let me tell you this. A pattern is only for a season. And the season for this pattern is over. If you are still running cell groups and you bring everybody in and you start with an icebreaker, then worship and pray, I'm telling you, most likely your cell group might be a little bit boring and lifeless. And it isn't going to be exciting. It's not going to grow very much because the pattern cannot be used over and over again. But on the other hand, what we need to understand is that contained within the patterns are truths. There are principles And when it comes to these truths, they are different, they are evergreen, they are eternal, they work forever, they are always going to be effective. And the key in understanding the patterns that are there in the Word of God is to be able to distinguish between what is the outward form of the pattern vis-a-vis what is the truth that is hidden beneath the surface of the pattern. Take, for example, the tabernacle of Moses. Now, If we are stuck on this pattern, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make this church into three parts. There's going to be an outer court, there's going to be a holy place, and there's going to be a holy of holies. And only Pastor can come into the holy of holies because he's the high priest in the house. Can you imagine if we still applied a pattern like that? Can you imagine that we would apply the patterns of, you know, of a sequence of barriers, of rituals that people had to go through in order to come into God's presence? I'm telling you this, two hours for service will not be enough. Every Sunday you have to, you know, you know, uh, take off your shoes, you've got to wash, you've got to cleanse, and you've got to come in, you've got to bring sheep, you've got to bring cattle, you've got to bring, you know, animal sacrifices. This is done and over with. Amen. God doesn't want us to re-erect the tabernacle of Moses in our midst because he's done with that. But you see, the tabernacle remains a wealth of truth that tells us about what Jesus has done for us. It tells us that, hey, there is a deeper place in God that God is uh, inviting us to, but realizes Jesus has torn the veil in the holiest place that separates us from the presence of God from top to bottom so that there is a new and living way that's been made open and we can come boldly into His presence on a daily, constant basis. Amen? That's the wonderful truth that is underlying this pattern, but we mustn't get stuck on the pattern in the same manner when it comes to cell group. You know, the cell group must always have elements of prayer, of worship, of coming together and fellowship. And these things are vital for building a spiritual community. But the emphasis, the truth behind those things that we are doing, the thing that we are most deeply concerned about is the connection that we as brothers and sisters build spiritually together. 
that our walk with God is not individual, that there is something communal in our connection spiritually that helps us grow. Amen? So learn to vary that. Don't be bound by a pattern, but understand what is the essence behind the pattern that God wants us to have. You see, that is why our form and our methodology must be ever-changing. The style of our songs. I know lots of Cornerstonians, we love our hymns, okay? But we can't only sing hymns. I would be worried if the church doesn't come up with new songs all the time because, you know, songs are birthed by our experiences with God. You know, some of us, when we encounter God, what do we do? We write. You know, or there's something that we, some people, they paint. But you see, one of the expressions of, of our progression with God is that new songs are being birthed in the community. Now, if there are no new songs coming out from Cornerstone, I'd be worried about that. Amen? Right? And so there must be new songs. The order of our services can change. The liturgy of our services, all the lack of liturgy. You know, God can re revive liturgy for a season as well. Amen? Right? The language that we use, the pattern, uh, the platforms that we use to communicate through, all these things must be ever-changing. I want to look again at the diagram that I presented to you earlier. First, we receive a pattern. But the pattern, if we, don't, we, we continue to use it out of season, it becomes a tradition. And that's something that binds. But if we can distill the truth and the principles behind the pattern, then we discover what is everlasting and what will continue to give life. So let's come back. Let's come back to this pattern of the Queen of Sheba and what she was impressed by, okay? Because what I want to do is I want us to understand that as we look at this pattern of Solomon and Israel during the time when Queen of Sheba visited him, then how he organized his courts, how he organized his kingdom, that we actually see a really wonderful pattern. But we don't get stuck on the pattern. We must see beyond the pattern to see the truth and distill the truth from the pattern that we're observing. You see, if we get stuck in a the pattern, then we might think, hey, you know, what God is saying to us is about buildings, extravagant buildings, lavish buildings, things that are outwardly impressive because that's what actually happens in this pattern. Then we give ourselves the, you know, excuse to build uh, uh, expensive buildings and systems, you know, and things like that, forgetting that that's not the thing that God wants us to focus on. He wants us to see what is the underlying principle and truth. So I want to ask you to take some time today, tag along with me. I got eight points. That's very long. And because it's eight points, I'm going to go through them really, really fast, okay? I want to encourage you to take the simple eight points and go back, reflect upon it, glean more for yourself than what I'm giving to you. But I want to start by looking at these five verses, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1 to verse 5, and show you the pattern of these eight things that the Queen of Sheba and her visit tells us. Now in verse uh, 1, it says, Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came and to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels that bore spices, very much gold, precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And then the Queen of Sheba, uh, and, and the Queen of Sheba had seen, and here's the eight things, okay? Number one, the wisdom of Solomon. Number two, the house that he had built. Number three, the food on his table. Number four, the seating of his servants. Number five, the service of his waiters. Number six, the apparels. Number seven, his cupbearers. And number eight, his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. And there was no more spirit in her. Okay, so these are the eight things. Now again, let me emphasize this, that this list is a pattern. 
A wonderful pattern that God has given to us. But if we read and merely accept this pattern as is and try to duplicate it, then we are going to be in deep trouble, okay? This pattern is more than 4,000 years old and to retain it is to miss the whole point of why the Holy Spirit retained and gives us this account, okay? For one thing, we, you know, um, we, we don't operate under a kingship mentality in our leadership style here anymore. Is that right? Pastor is not the king of Cornerstone. Hello, Jesus is the king, okay? Jesus came and says, this is the style, this is the method of leadership in the kingdom of God, that he who is greatest shall be the least, you know, and, uh, you know, and we don't lord it over people, we serve, okay? So there's a real change in that. And you see, if we miss that, and pastors and leaders begin to operate like kings and treat their people like servants on the basis of the pattern that is in the Old Testament, then it is wrong. Now, if you ever come across a leadership like this, Please run, okay, run. Go somewhere. <laughs> yeah, but thankfully in Cornerstone, that's not why we believe, okay? Now, the pattern nonetheless is still very powerful, okay? And what we want to do is to see the truth that is behind it. So let me quickly give you what these eight things and uh, my interpretation of these eight things, okay? Number one is the wisdom of Solomon, and that is straightforward, that is wisdom, okay? Proverbs 8, Proverbs 9, crucial scriptures in the Bible that gives us a real insight into what wisdom is. And in these two chapters, right, we realize that wisdom is not just a virtue, it's not just a quality, it's not just a gift, it's not just an ability, but instead wisdom is actually a person. Wisdom is talking like a person. Wisdom is speaking to us. And wisdom himself in speaking in these two chapters and in Proverbs 8, 22 to 31 specifically, we realize that this wisdom, this person of wisdom is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is wisdom. To have wisdom is to have Christ, right? I mean, there's a lot in the Bible that speaks about wisdom. We know that wisdom has got seven pillars. And James, the, you know, in uh, James chapter 3 tells us we, what these seven pillars are, you know, and what they are. And they're essentially qualities that will uh, enable us to, show, to, uh, to, to realize what wisdom is. They frame wisdom, okay? And these are the qualities of that. But I want to show us a couple of things, okay? And the most important thing I want us to realize is this, that wisdom is available to every one of us. It doesn't matter what's your academic qualification. It doesn't matter what school you went to. It doesn't matter how old you are. Wisdom is available to every one of us. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17 says this, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. You love wisdom? Do you seek wisdom? Because if you love wisdom, you seek wisdom, you'll find wisdom. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Ask God. Is this something that we're asking God for on a daily basis? When you wake up in the mornings, you know, what do you pray for? Do you pray just for a good day or do you pray for wisdom? Amen. And the more you ask for it, the more God will give it to you. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 14 to verse 15. Here is a man who behaved wisely, okay? And it's David. It says David behaved wisely in all his ways and the Lord was with him. And therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. You see, the world is going to be impressed by genuine wisdom, okay? And wisdom, the genuine wisdom, essentially knows how to behave oneself properly. Amen? If we know how to behave ourselves, if we know how to conduct ourselves, I promise you this, the world will observe a wisdom that they'll be impressed by when we walk that way. Amen? 
Now, the second thing is works, okay? Uh, or, you know, in, in, in the scriptures, it says the house that Solomon built, and that's works, okay? And, and let me um, uh, preamble this and make it clear that works do not earn us any brownie points with God. I mean, God loves us. God has poured His favor on us. Jesus paid the same price for every single man, child, woman, in order to get saved. And nothing that we do can make us more acceptable to God because Jesus has already done it. It's not by works. Amen. But at the same time, works refers to our calling. It refers to whom God has created us to be. Genesis chapter 2, the word works appears the first time. It talks about the work that God gave to Adam. And, and that word, work, actually means to become. In other words, what you do, you become. What you do will begin to frame how you think, how you see things, your personality, your character. And I don't mean just a job that you're doing. I mean, what is it that you're inclined towards? There are some people who love to teach. You know, there are others who love to be the extension of mercy. Still others love to innovate and create. Others are artistic. They love arts, the music. They see things, uh, and they see these things as a means to express God's love and reality to the world. And we got to function in those things in which we are created to be. Amen? Um, several, I've been working on something on my own. It's, uh, I've been working on my own eulogy, okay? And I've been imagining, okay, if I'm going to die in two weeks' time and I'm going to be at my own funeral, what would I want to be sit at my funeral? Okay? And I think that this is probably one of the most enlightening exercises that we can do. Try writing your own eulogy because I'm thinking about what I want to be said. And, and you know, I'm telling you, the, the, the foremost things that are coming to my mind, okay, is about my boys, my kids. You know, I, I, I so want my boys to be able to stand up and say, you know, my dad opened up possibilities for us. You know, I want my boys to say, my dad, you know, showed us that anything is possible if we put our hearts to it, if we trust God, you know? And I begin to think about all these things, and I'm telling you, when you start writing your own eulogy, it will really help you, it will give you insight and help you define what is it that you really ought to be doing with your life. Yeah? Try doing that. Try writing your own eulogy, okay? We can exchange notes after a while. The third thing is the food that is served at his table. By this, it is not talking about food per se, Okay? And my interpretation for this, it's about words, right? The food that is being served by Solomon represents the Word of God. And the scale of the church, we we'll want to make sure here in Cornerstone, there is always fresh bread. That's why we have young speakers coming up because we're training a new generation of people that are going to feed the, uh, you know, the, that's going to bring bread to the people of God. Right? We want to make sure there's always substantive quality that when people come to our services and they walk away, they feel fed spiritually. But at a personal level, there is something else that we need to realize. And the question is this, is there a feeding quality in the conversations that we have and what we say to people? We've all experienced this, okay? There are people that we hang out with, you know, and we talk to them, we have some, an hour with them, an hour and a half, and we walk away and our vision is expanded, our hearts are stirred. You know, we've become more passionate than before. We, you know, we begin to dream bigger, we begin to be stirred to say, hey, I want to walk in faith. There are some people that propel us to become more passionate as other, you know, as a person, right? But then there are other meetings that we have. At the end of one hour sitting down with a person, we feel like we need a three-week vacation immediately, okay? And I want to ask you, what kind of a person are you? What kind of food do you bring to people through your words? Does your words evoke encouragement, strength, empathy, motivation? 
or sympathy, or does it evoke anger, disappointment, agitation? You know, what is it? You see, there's something I'm doing right now. And that's, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to put certain things into place in my life. You know, this week, you know, on the bus coming to church, I really felt the Lord said to me, Lip, I want you to um, every day write something, write one page, you know? And, uh, you know, I've always wanted to write. I always felt in my heart that I want to write, but I always feel like I've got nothing to write about, you know? I've got nothing to tell people about. And I just felt the Lord said this week, every day just write one page, okay? Uh, I'm, I'm trying really hard to discipline myself to do that. But, you know, I've got a few things down in my life. Every morning I wake up, you know, I do my quiet time. I spend time with God. And that I nail down. Every day I exercise. You know, I do some kind of a workout except for Wednesdays. And uh, I run almost every single day. And that's wonderful. You know, there's one more thing that I'm trying to nail down in my life. And that's social media. I am trying to discipline myself every day, half an hour to an hour on social media. Some of you might be thinking, huh? Shouldn't we fast from social media? You know, I come to this simple conclusion, okay? All of a sudden, something has happened and I just, you know, I wouldn't say I love social media, but I've discovered, hey, social media is the most powerful pastoral tool that God has given to us. If today, at the end of the service, I were to stand at the door and greet people, and my desire is just to know a little bit about what's happening in your life. And you were to come up to me and say, hey, Pastor Lip, this is what's been happening in my life. This is what is going on. I'm going through a season in my life. I'm looking for a new job. I feel frustrated about this. And, and hearing what you've shared at the end of it, then to give you a thumbs up, a pat on the back, or to say a simple prayer over your life. I'm just thinking in half an hour, how many people can I actually communicate with? And I think in the most optimistic estimation, it is four persons I can do in half an hour. Because if you get to talk to me, I promise you, most of us, we will not talk two minutes, okay? We'll talk 10 minutes. We'll talk 12 minutes or more, right? But then all of a sudden, I go to social media and I discover, hey, if I were to spend an hour on social media, I can go through maybe 50 people and people share their lives on social media. I know about this church member who lost her grandfather just a few weeks ago. And, and, and she told a story of how the grandfather was a piano tuner. And I read the stories. I was so moved by it, right? I mean, how long would it take that person to share that story with me face to face? I prayed for the person. And so what I do in this half an hour, an hour every day now is that I go through my social media feed and I read through what people are doing. I give them thumbs up. I give them a comment. Or I pray for them. And if I feel really led to do so, I'll record a prayer and I'll send it to them. And I've discovered, hey, social media is a tool. It's a help. And if you are fasting from social media, there are two reasons you're doing it. Number one, you totally fail to understand what social media is and you are driven by your ego and you use social media just to, you know, feed your own need for likes. Right? And I'm done with that. I don't care how many people like or anything. I just think this is a great tool. The second thing is you're literally addicted to social media. And I've seen kids on TikTok, you know, they can go for an hour because it's so addictive, right? You know, but for me, I really, I'm forcing myself to do this. Okay, I just started a TikTok account, by the way. And um, I don't know how to use it. I really don't know. You know, and if any of you are an expert on TikTok, drop me a DM, teach me how to do this. I don't want to sing songs, I don't want to dance, but I think that, hey, behind these social media tools, are, I believe all these social media tools are invented for all the wrong reasons. Okay. But the technology behind it, if we can discover it, we can redeem it. And we can use it to do something good. 
right? So if you're some expert in uh, TikTok, please drop me a DM. I want to learn how to use this thing, okay? And to use it properly and to use it for good, yeah? So I want to encourage you because we, most of us, we are on social media in some form or another. Can you imagine all of us combining our social media account? That's, I don't know, 100,000 people. If we would begin to feed it with something that is positive, with something that encourages, what is the word, what is the food that we're going to be bringing to all the people? Because it is, there's so much toxic, toxicity that we, you know, and, and we can't blame the social media for being toxic because we have abdicated the space of it. We're not putting anything into it, right? So I want to encourage us because the world is hungry, the world is starving, and we can feed it something good, okay? Now, the fourth thing is the seeding of the servants, okay? And this represents placement. One of my favorite secular books is this book by Jim Collins called Good to Great. And in the book, he talks about several aspects of how to run a great organization, you know, and uh, he deconstructs these uh, organizations that are not just good, but they're great. And he talks about human resource and the placement of people. And he uses an illustration of a bus. He says there are two things when it comes to human resource. Number one, get the wrong people off the bus, get the right people on the bus, right? And then the second principle is get the right people sitting in the right seats. And this second principle is about placement. You've got to get right people sitting and doing the right things. Don't get wrong people doing the wrong things. Never get Pastor Lip to lead worship. Okay? Yeah, I'm telling you this. Yeah? But get him to do something else, okay? Get him to serve tables. He's good at that, okay? And uh, other things, okay? You see, let me explain this for a while, okay? When we are young, it's good for us to serve, full stop. Okay? If you're 35 and below, you're 40 and below, or, you know, I think 35 and below, and you're asked to do something, let me tell you this, your default should be yes. That's what I did when I was in my 20s, my early 30s, past time will come to me and say, Lip, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. I never think, I never pray. He says, my pastor tells me to do it, I say yes. He asked me to look after, you know, at that time we didn't have a bookstore, but we had, a, you know, some resource ministry. He said, Lip, take over the resource ministry. I said, okay, yes, I'll do it, right? Then he, he, he said to me, you know, Lip, I want you to uh, run service coordination in Cornerstone in those days. And I said, yep, yes, I'll do it. Then he said, Lip, uh, all the air conditioning in the church, I want you to look after it. I said, yep, yes. Did I study any of these things? Am I an expert? Do I have a degree? In it? None, none. I didn't know how to do any of these things at all. I had to learn them from scratch. But when you're young, you say yes, because when, you are, when we are young, we have high availability, we have low capability, right? We have a lot of time, so we just do, right? But as you get older, when you hit your 40s and you begin to acquire skill, you begin to acquire expertise, then our availability decreases, our capability increases. At that point, you don't say yes to everything. You need to know where is the seat that God has given to you. And you've got to sit on the right seat. You can't be saying yes to everything. Pastor Young can't be saying yes to everything right now. He has to be very selective about what he agrees to do. So that's placement, okay? And the, the fifth one is the, ser the, the waiters, the service of the waiters, okay? And service is important. And service is really about attitude. We only serve with the right attitude when we understand why we are serving, right? Why are we serving? Do we value people? You know, um, you know when we really value people, our serving will change. It will be different. When we really focus on loving God and loving God through loving people and serving people, then every person that comes before us is going to be different. I've been taking public transport the last couple of weeks, couple of months, you know, and, um, and I hop on the bus. Usually, initially, when I do that, I hop on the bus, I find a quiet seat, I open my iPad, I read, I do whatever it is, okay? 
And when you take public transport enough, you begin to think, hey, maybe I need to open my eyes to the people around me instead of just burying myself you know, to my little corner and read my book. So I decided this. Every time I take a public transport, before I bought the, the, the bus, I would go buy something, a drink, uh, bread, whatever it is. And I will go up to the bus and I'll hand it over to the bus driver and say, hey, have a good day. Okay? I'm telling you, that's very, very awkward. <laughs> Try it. Because I'll do it like that and the bus driver will stare back at me and says, are you crazy? Are you mad? What is this? Then you have to explain to the bus driver, oh no, this is just for you, you know, to bless you, right? And then they'll take it and like, you could see the awkwardness in their eyes. Then they're like, oh, okay, they'll take it. And then, yeah, but, keep, but the point is this, I want to see people, right? I want to open my eyes to see people because it's, you know, we, we've stopped seeing people. We just see things around us. We see our schedule. We see what we need to do. We just stop seeing people, okay? The third one is how they were dressed and how they're attired. And now, every time the Bible talks about attiring, it has always got to do with how we think and our mindsets, right? The Bible says this and gives us several imageries. It says that in the New Testament, that we are to put, that, that, um, you know, that we are to put on Christ. We are to put on the full armor of God, right? And, those, and, the, and putting on means, you know, that it's a, a, a terminology of clothing, right? In Ephesians, we are told to put on the new man. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 10 to verse 14, it says, put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge. So the new man is distinguished by a new way of thinking, right? And then it goes on and says, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness. I mean, these are all attitudes. These are all thinking patterns. These are all characteristics, right? And this is what clothing is all about. Right? Now, this next thing is um, the cup bearers, okay? And this is our people, okay? And of course, in the Old Testament, in the days uh, of kings, cup bearers were men of uh, high rank and they were um, held in great confidence by the sovereign, right? And um, they protected the sovereign uh, at times, drinking their cup to test for poison. They were very, very close and they had great influence and proximity to the sovereign. And Nehemiah is the perfect example of a cup bearer. He was a cup bearer to Artaxerxes was held in high regard, and the reason is because the record shows us that he had great financial um, integrity, you know, and he, he was really, really trusted. So the queen saw the quality of the men that were around Solomon, and that's the quality of the people. We want to be quality men and women who are reliable, who are trustworthy, who have got great integrity. Amen? And then finally, uh, the entryway into the house of God, and that speaks about our worship, okay? And again, I think more than anything else, worship is associated with sacrifice because the first time that worship is mentioned in the Bible, it is the sacrifice of Isaac, right? And there must be sacrifice in our lives. And, you know, these are the things that makes an impression when the world looks at us. The world looks at us and we're not, you know, selfish, we're not self-seeking. There's a strong sacrificial nature in us that we're willing to sacrifice comforts, we're willing to sacrifice things in our worship of God. This is what the world will see. The world will not look at you holding your hands up and worshipping God and say, whoa, I'm impressed by that, right? Do you think the world is impressed by us holding our hands up, worshipping here in church when they just look at it? No, they'll be impressed by the sacrifice that we're willing to make, right? And this is what makes an impression in the world. Our words, our attitude, our love, our eyes for people, Right? The quality of uh, who we are. Let's all stand to our feet. And I want to invite us just to a simple examination. Remember, this is not a pattern. 
I'm not asking you from next week on when you come to church, wow, you know, watch over your dressing. Suddenly, you know, we all have to do up our hair three stories high and we got to, you know. No, no, no. I'm not asking us, you know, to think to bring food to church next week and oh, this is the food that I bring. Don't, don't look. That pattern is past. But the, to see the underlying principle of those patterns to watch our words, to examine that, you know, to think, what is the mindset that governs us? Have we put on the new man with a renewed sense of knowledge? Our minds being renewed so that we think differently from the way the world thinks. So we value things differently from the way the world values. Amen. I want to ask us just to open our hearts. You know, there's a lot that I've covered today and I apologize if, if it is an overload of things. But I just believe Holy Spirit can indicate one, two things to us and make it really applicable and real for us. Amen. And I want to encourage you, you can download the slides from our Church Scribe app. You can go back and you can, you know, see out more things for yourself. You can examine the Word of God even more and deeper. And I'm certain that you'll get greater, deeper revelations than I've been able to provide for you. But what is important is for the Holy Spirit to come speak to us about one, two things perhaps in our lives that we just need to adjust. Amen. I want to encourage us. Some of us really need to write our own eulogies because we're still wondering, God, what is it that you called me to do? What am I supposed to do in my life? You know what? Write your eulogy. It'll help you define that in some ways. It'll get you a little bit nearer and closer to understanding how God has designed you to be. Amen. But let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your goodness over us, Lord. We thank you that we sit not in the courts of King Solomon, but we sit in the courts of heaven, O oh God. That there is a court that you are establishing. There's a place, there is a community that you are putting here on this earth in this hour that the queens of Sheba shall come and they shall look and say, hey, what is happening here? Lord, the kings and the queens of this world that come into contact with us are going to be dramatically changed. They're going to be impressed, Lord, upon, Lord. There's an imprint that will come upon them, Lord, as we walk in this truth, in the truth of these patterns that you've given to us, O oh Lord. Father, help us adjust our lives if it is our words that needs to change, if it is our thinking that needs to change, if it is our attitude. What is it that you need us to adjust, O oh God? Speak to us as only you can, Lord. Father, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters, myself, Lord. I thank you that you have placed us on this earth for such a time as this, oh God. We thank you, Lord, that it is such a wonderful opportunity for us. Open our eyes to see the people around us. Open our eyes to see that the fields are indeed wide unto harvest, oh God. And Lord, that you are calling for laborers to be thrust into the fields, Lord, to reap the harvest that's coming. Father, we want to be counted. We want to be ready. We want to distill the truths. And we, are, we want our lives to be a living example of Solomon and his courts, Lord. Everything that is there that you desire it to be. Father, we bless you. We give you praise. We give you glory. And now, Lord, I just speak your blessings over my brothers and my sisters upon every one of us, the blessings of God the Father, the blessings of God the Son, and the blessings of God the Holy Spirit be with us and abide with us now and forevermore. And everybody say, Amen. Let's give the Lord a clap often, shall we? You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.